So good morning. My name is Harry Strauss. I'm part of the pastoral team. And my um, responsibility and my calling to bring the message today. Uh, we are in the book of Romans as a uh, series which we started three weeks ago. It was my calling, my privilege to start this series three weeks ago. And I have to admit that I was somewhat relieved uh, and actually pleased that I got to preach from Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which is largely good news. We spent quite a bit of time in verses 16 and 17, uh, which talks about the uh, salvation and the gift of righteousness that is ours. And so I was kind of relieved that I didn't have to speak from chapter 1, verse 18 to 320, which is all about the sinfulness of humanity, uh, the deficiency in humanity as far as the righteousness is concerned. Um, Little did I know that later that week, Bruce would ask if I would speak today from chapter 3, verses uh, 8 and following, or 9 and following to be more specifically which is the uh, culminating passage, the concluding passage about the sinfulness of humanity. So, my task today is to remind us that we are sinners. Uh, My task is to remind us that outside of Jesus Christ, we fall short of the glory of God. My task today is that apart from Christ, when compared to the holiness God, uh, we are woefully deficient as far as righteousness is concerned. Any of you want my job? (laughs) Um, You know, and it's harder in the day and age that we live in, in that sin is not really talked about that much. There seems to be little regard for the assessment that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even the usage of the word sin seems to be anywhere from occasional in society uh, to rare, Uh, to maybe not at all. Maybe the only time we get exposed to the word sin is the acronym for social insurance number. And when you fill out a form, and I filled out a form actually this week, that's why I'm, uh, they sort of came to my mind. They said, what is your sin? And I kind of thought, how do they know? You know, Uh, how do they know? My, my, My sin is the sin, of course, of Adam. So in a moment, we'll step into this passage, which is not good news about humanity. But before we do as such, before I remind us that we are sinners, uh, we equally, if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, are saints. The Bible refers to us as such. Now, the NIV 2011 version doesn't use that language. It went and shifted to the language of his holy people. But there are other translations that explicitly say that we are the saints of God if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's true of the book of Romans. So before we get into chapter 3 here, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 7, Paul refers to the believers at Rome as his holy ones, the holy ones, God's holy people. So in Christ we are sinners because, yes, that is true, but because of God's righteousness, which we will also be looking at today, and we'll end this message with a good news, especially as we go to communion. We'll read chapter 3, verse 21 and following. But because of the gift of righteousness, we are recognized as, as well as the saints of God. So we go from being tagged sinners to that of being tagged saints. So legitimately we can say, In Jesus Christ, we are saints. 
Could you say that with me two times before we get into this so we sort of impress that line upon you? And I'll just say the line again. In Jesus Christ, we are saints. So let's say it two times. In Jesus Christ, we are saints. In Jesus Christ, we are saints. So as we work through this material, I'm going to invite you to be thinking about implications of this passage for you. At the end, I will identify three, but I will identify one at least as we're going through this, and the other ones are also implied there, but we'll pull it together. So for your sense of engagement with this text, our added sense of engagement, that's your assignment. What are the implications of Romans chapter 3, verse 9, and following for you? So let's step into it, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? And again, this is the concluding passage from 118 to 320. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? And Paul is comparing Gentiles and Jews here. That's part of the discussion in the verses immediately before this. He says, not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And now what Paul will do is he's picking up lines from the Old Testament to demonstrate that and to make that point. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. And the imagery there is just think of the stench that would be coming from an open grave. So that's the imagery that's intended from the Old Testament. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. And their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those that are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So, what is this text saying? We'll identify three different thoughts here, and then the implications grow out of that. Number one, we are all under the power of sin, as identified in 3.9. What then shall we conclude then? We all, Jews and Gentiles alike, are all under the power of sin. So humanity does not just commit sin. Uh, it is, as well, under the power of sin. Now again, as suggested in the opening, there can be an inclination to disregard or dismiss sin outright. Uh, or even for believers to forget that that is where we come from and that is our background going back to Genesis chapter 3. I looked at Scripture, and there's four different reasons. Very briefly, we'll be through these four different reasons why we may disregard sin, or society in general will disregard sin. The first two may not be, uh, would be probably, um, you've probably, many of you would have seen it before, but maybe the last two are new to you, and those two will be on the screen. Uh, one is the loss of sensitivity to sin. In Ephesians, you have that line, Ephesians 4, 19, 
having lost all sensitivity to sin, they've given themselves over to every kind of sexual expression and, and sin. And so the heart maybe becomes callous, and just like someone maybe who's lost the capacity for feeling and accidentally touches the element on the stove and doesn't feel it, that's kind of the idea here. Having lost all sensitivity to sin and engaged in the world of sin and not realizing the implications of the sin that would be there. Second one would be self-deception. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. 1 John chapter 1. And Scripture talks about the heart is so deceptive. One could be right in the world of sin and deceive oneself into thinking that this is legitimate and this is appropriate. Uh, The the, the self-deceiving peace that comes with sin. Here's a new one for me, Psalm 36, verse 2. This will be on the screen. Self-flattery. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. So one gets caught in the world of building oneself up and so, huh, I'm not a sinner. I'm I'm an all right person. And that's self-flattery that one might engage in. Or, this is a new one for me as well, in Hosea chapter 12, 8, it would be the confidence in wealth. It doesn't mean that because we have wealth that we would be here, but there can be a relationship between the two. Ephraim boasts. Ephraim was one of the tribes, and so this is speaking on behalf of Israel, the people of God. Ephraim boasts, I am very rich, I have become wealthy with all my wealth. They will not find in me any iniquity or sin. And Scripture would speak about some of the warnings related to wealth, that with the accumulation of wealth, which is, can be seen as the blessing of God, there can be a certain measure of arrogance that comes with that. And with that comes then this potential propensity to say, huh, I'm above sin, and to dismiss sin as insignificant. But, 800 times plus the word sin or sins is used. And then there are multiple stories throughout Scripture about the reality of sin. The biblical record from Genesis, the Revelation, is that sin is a big problem. It's a big problem in the book of Revelation. And you get the seals and you get the trumpets and you get ultimately the bowls of God's wrath. Why? Because of this issue of sin give you some examples from scripture just of this the the centrality of this issue this this problem called sin adam and eve sinned and then in their same shame and nakedness they tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves i mentioned in my class it's really interesting that i'm teaching genesis and this morning we're in genesis chapter three uh, the very origin of the place of sin and uh, <laughs> So Adam and Eve are sewing fig leaves together. They're naked and trying to cover themselves up. And I'm not sure how well that would work, but uh, I, I guess they were trying to do that. But it, it speaks of their, of their sin and their, 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 their shame. Or the story of Cain and Abel. Sin is crouching at your door. God speaks to Cain and says, sin is right there crouching at your door. Or you go to the sin of David and his confession in Psalm 51, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Or Daniel, when he prays, he says he's confessing his sin, and not only his sin, but also the sin of the people of God. 
And you take that image from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 64, verse 6. All our righteous acts acts are like filthy rags. I don't know where your rag bag is in your house and where you store stuff like that, but uh, sometimes those rags really get raggy. Righteousness, our righteousness, my righteousness is as such as described in Isaiah. It's interesting we get to the New Testament a couple of examples. One example from Jesus, uh, and Jesus uses an exaggeration here in Matthew chapter 5, but he's making a point about the destructive power of sin. And he says, if your right hand causes you to stumble in sin, cut it off and throw it away. (laughs) Which really speaks about the gravity of this issue called sin. And then the final one, just Paul the Apostle coming back into the book of Romans. He talks about what a wretched man I am. Uh, You know, even going back to January the 8th, I talked a little bit about Martin Luther. It's year 500 of the Reformation. And Martin Luther and Paul the Apostle would have understood each other, or Martin Luther would have understood Paul. When Paul said, what a wretched man I am. Martin Luther wanted to be right with God, and he knew of this sin problem, and he knew of this alienation with God. And uh, somehow he couldn't find rest, and, uh, and, and he confessed sin, and sin, and sin. And, and, it's, and it's indicated there are some days that he would take six hours to confess his sins, um, till he discovered the gift of righteousness. But, you know, we could say, well, Martin Luther was an obsessed guy, kind of, on this sin issue, and... Uh, but better a man that is dealing with a problem and wrestling with it for six hours a day than someone who doesn't acknowledge his or her sin at all. So sin is the number one problem from Genesis to Revelation. What shall we conclude then? We have already made the charge that all all Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin is the conclusion there from Romans 3, 9. So what then shall we do? One implication that I'll be explicit here. Um, I went and watched the movie Silence, uh, which some of you may be considering going and seeing as well. Uh, The movie is about the persecution of Christians in Japan in the 17th century and focuses on the persecution of Jesuit priests, a religious order within the Catholic Church. I would warn, it is a tough movie to watch in different places, but there's a line in there by Japanese believers that comes through two or three times where the line is, uh, forgive me for I have sinned. Uh, There's nothing complicated here about this implication for us in terms of response, but one of the implications is that we live a life, confessional life, confessing, when we are aware of our sinfulness or a sin that we have committed, that we take those to God to acknowledge our sinfulness and to be asking for forgiveness of God. That is not a one-time event and experience in life. That is an ongoing journey in life and discipline to be exercised at different times in different places as we become aware of perhaps expressions of sin, maybe not something that we do outwardly, but our thoughts within... Bring that to God, and we ask for for confession. We confess. Number two, there is no one who is righteous. In Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. 
because we are under the power of God, we are unrighteous. And so then as we read through that text, and I've summarized the text, and I want to say it again just in terms of my summary statements here, but Paul really presses as he uses these lines from the Old Testament to make this point that there is no one that is righteous. There is no one righteous because people don't seek God. There is no one righteous because people don't do good. Uh, There is no one righteous because people don't use their lips in godly ways. As a matter of fact, lips can be marked by deceit, cursing, and bitterness. Uh, There is no one righteous because people don't treat others well. Reality is that relationships can be marked by aggressive behavior, abuse, and even the shedding of blood. Uh, People don't fear God. People don't live life with an immense respect and regard for the holiness and the righteousness of God. Now, I'm a little bit of a student of revivals and spiritual awakenings. There are times in history when major awakenings have come where scores, thousands and thousands of people within churches are renewed and revived. And not only that, it begins to have a significant impact in society as well where there is a great deal of confession of sin. And the people of God, it begins with the people of God. The people of God wake up to their own sinfulness. But as a rule, it is preceded by this wake up to the holiness of God. Somehow when uh, an awakening happens, there was one in 1903, 1904, 1905, 1858, 1859, 1860, as as, as people come together and intercede for their city or their land or their church, there is this awakening that has at different times come. And it begins to have impact on society as a whole. But it begins with this sense of the holiness of God. And as people wake up to the holiness of God, they, the people of God, they wake up to their own sinfulness, their miscues in life. Then they confess their sin. They discover afresh the the newness and the, and the delight of being forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ and give and they come into society with an added evangelistic and missional fervor. People don't live always with an immense respect and regard for the holiness and the righteousness of God. So consequently, in 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. And then when we get right to the bottom of the passage, 3.20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. You know, I have this little phrase that came into my mind working on this last week, and the phrase is simply, we go from righteousness to unrighteousness to righteousness. And expanded, that means in our journey to Christ, we go from self-assessed righteousness Without the biblical revelation, we kind of gravitate to this idea of Psalm 36 too. In our own eyes, we can flatter ourselves too much to detect or hate our own sin. But we go from this self-assessed righteousness, which is false, to a biblically determined unrighteousness. This whole passage of Scripture right here, that we are unrighteousness, ultimately to a Christ-given righteousness. And we'll read those verses here in a moment. But we go from righteousness to unrighteousness to righteousness. Uh, I haven't read Pilgrim's Progress in a long time, but I have read it uh, years ago, I think a couple of times. Uh, Faithful is one of the stories, uh, heroes in the story. 
and he nobly resists the temptation of the old man to marry his three daughters, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And those of you acquainted with biblical language, that is language that comes from the New Testament. Those are different sins. So here is faithful in his pilgrim progress. He is journeying, and, and this temptation comes along, and he resists it, and he nobly resists it. But he was soon met by the man Moses, who beats him unmercifully for having a secret inclination to agree with the old man. The secret inclination of faithful was, yes, I'm in on the pride of life, on the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the flesh. (laughs) So he didn't sin outwardly, but the temptation sure was there, and he really wanted to do it. And Jesus, when he talks about sexual sin and what adultery means or what it means to hate someone, you know, all it takes is a few thoughts within someone's soul and heart, and they are now in the realm of a sinner, even though they didn't commit the sin. To the core, humanity falls short of the glory of God. Humanity is sinful, devoid of righteousness. If we don't fail outwardly, we fail inwardly. And in the story of Pilgrim's Progress, Faithful would have been killed by the old man Moses representing the law had it not been for the intervention of the man with the nail prints in his hand. In other words, Jesus Christ. Which transitions us into our third and concluding thought, the gift of righteousness provided for us by the one with the nail-pierced hand. So all are under the power of sin. Two, there is no unrighteousness. And then number three, I want to read, and that's basically all I'm going to do, a few comments about it, uh, 3.21 to the end of the chapter, verse 26, and this, then we will move to uh, worshiping again and responding. Uh, this will be the passage that will be spoken from two weeks from today. Uh, this is the gift of righteousness. Uh, this is a huge shift from 3.20 to 3.21. There are all kinds of believers in Christ that have been immensely blessed moving from 3.20 to 3.21. It starts with this but, but, and it's a pivotal change that happens right here. It's not easy to follow all the language with it, but this is comparable. Those of you who were here January the 1st and January 8th, and I read from Romans chapter 5, verses 15 to 17, which talks about the gift of righteousness. This is the gift of righteousness, though it doesn't use that word gift here. It does in Romans chapter 5. But this is the fantastic good news that we take, we'll take into the rest of the service and certainly the communion table. 321. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, this gift that is given, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That's the cross, and what we'll remember here as we take communion together through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. 
He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, demonstrated his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. To justify means to be declared righteous in the eyes of God. So this is the good news. Romans 3, 21 to 26. The disease of sin, our sin, is not cured sin by sin, ultimately, or scab by scab, but rather there is one medicine for the illness, and it is the gift of righteousness which the book of Romans talks about. So implications, considerations for you, three thoughts I put in front of you. And by the way, with this gift of righteousness, we have then cause to say we are saints and the holy ones. Our response... Uh, confessing of sin. For the believer in Jesus Christ is already given, I gave indication on that, that that is an ongoing discipline of confessing, confessing sin, doing so within the overall promise and assurance of the gift of righteousness. For the person considering faith in Christ for the first time, a big part of considering the Christian faith is recognizing one's alienation from God And part of that alienation then calls for this confessing of one's sin and one's brokenness with God and reestablishing this critical relationship. So confessing of sin. Number two, embracing the gift of righteousness because of the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think perhaps one of the best verses to describe the work of the cross and the implications of the cross as described also in Romans by the 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's the good news. The beginning point is that we are declared right in the eyes of God. And then number three, thanksgiving. And worship team, if you would please be coming up. Uh, If we understand where we've come from and we understand the promise of the gift of righteousness, how can we not be thankful? The rest of life really becomes an expression of doxology, of thanksgiving. Thank you. And so we are on this journey of eternal thanksgiving to God for what is being done in Jesus Christ. So... I invite you, in consideration of Romans chapter 3, consider how you would be responding as we continue to worship.